It's always lovely just to be able to sit in prayer and I, I sometimes get up to preach after that and think, oh, I don't, I'm happy just to go back to that place of prayer really, but uh, it's good to be able to open the word of God. The conversation that I have with people often starts, or at least somewhere along the line, includes phrases like this, I've had it, I don't even know how we got to this point, it's all consuming, it's so complicated, I have tried everything and nothing seems to work. Everything I do seems to be the wrong thing. It's hopeless. I'm so angry one moment and I'm sad the next. It's exhausting. What should I do? Can you help? I wonder if you've used any of those phrases when talking about conflict. Conflict that maybe you've been part of. A difficult relationship that you've been trying to navigate. A relationship that was fine at first, but over time after a couple of unfortunate run-ins, some ill-chosen words, a thoughtless action or two, the relationship began to sour and now the relationship is all but over. Through the years in pastoral ministry, I've had many conversations where these kind of phrases have been used, uh, working within pioneers and working with members serving overseas in often high-stress environments, I hear these phrases. And probably not surprising, working with a conflict organisation, I hear these phrases mentioned often. And whenever I hear them, my heart breaks a little. It breaks a little for the person who is sharing them for the obvious burden and weight that they're carrying. It breaks because I also know that it takes two to tango, which means there's probably somebody else feeling much the same way as the person sharing with me. And it breaks my heart further because I've navigated enough conflict to know that there are ripples. And the person hurting in front of me is not the only one hurting and that there are friends and acquaintances that are aware of what's going on, and they're thinking, what is going on here? At the very same time, my heart jumps with excitement, just a little. And it jumps with excitement for a little because there is an opportunity, an amazing opportunity, to be able to make Christ known. For this person who's sharing the hurt of the the conflict to be able to live out the message of reconciliation that we are called to proclaim, to preach and to testify. To be able to live out the power of the gospel to restore relationship. Not just their relationship with God but also their relationship with another person. In fact, I want to put before you this morning a proposition. A proposition that I'm going to try to justify, I guess, as we go on. But the proposition is this. That conflict with others is an expected part of participating in the mission of God. Let me say it again. That conflict with others is an expected part of participating in the mission of God. 
And if it's true, if conflict should actually be something that we expect to encounter as the people of God on mission for God, then it means a few things are true. It means, firstly, that we shouldn't see conflict as somehow a distraction, somehow an obstacle that we've got to just navigate to get on with the mission of God. Often when I talk to people who are in conflict, that's how it seems to be presented to me. It's like God has called me to do X and I can't do that because of this conflict. I want to challenge that this morning. If if conflict's to be expected, then actually conflict's actually part of the journey. It's something that's worthy of our time. It's worthy to actually kind of engage with, to persist with, to exercise faith within. Just in the same way as sometimes we have to kind of muscle up the faith to be able to invite someone to church or to ask the invitation, would you like to read scripture with me? Actually, sometimes in the place of conflict, we need to muscle up that same faith. And rather than escaping from it, we walk towards it and say, actually, we want to bring the power of a reconciling gospel at work to this relationship. But it also means, if this proposition is true, that we can be absolutely sure that God will use it to make himself known. One of the great hopes of the gospel and the good news that the world is desperate to hear is that the gospel is able to bridge differences. Bridge differences of opinion, of culture, of tradition. To bridge hurts and wrongs and injustice. And in a world in which is not only rife with interpersonal conflict, but also racial, racial and cultural division. People need to hear the gospel. I mean, we see that division across our own country and across the world, don't we? Uh, we see it in our own country with the, to give but one example, the, the issues around indigenous or Aboriginal reconciliation and treaty. We saw it this week with the kind of explosion or the erupting of violence between the Israeli and Palestinian conflict again. But we look across the world and we see conflict all over the place. And the gospel I want to put before you has an answer to that. It actually brings hope to that. But we first need to understand ourselves that this is a core element of the gospel. Don Carson, uh, who's a well-known biblical scholar, uh, says this in kind of in the context of what I'm saying. Uh, if we can bring up that first quote, he says the salvation secured by Christ in the gospel is more comprehensive than justification alone. It brings repentance, wholeness, love for brothers and sisters in the Christian community. But the sad fact remains that not all Christians have always viewed race relations and I would add into their more broadly conflict within the church as a gospel issue. Which means we need to be able to accept that actually this place of conflict is part of the gospel if we're going to be able to preach it. Now I've made a number of reasonably large claims in all of that uh, and we need to justify it. And so to do that, I want to open up John chapter 17 with you. Uh, 
Because I think John chapter 17 points us towards these thoughts. Uh, If you know the context of John 17, uh, or if you don't, let me explain it very briefly to you. Uh, John 17 records Jesus' final prayer. It takes place either in the upper room after Judas has portrayed Jesus and left, or maybe even in Gethsemane before the disciples have fallen asleep. That they overhear Jesus praying this. Either way, it's, it's spoken in the final hours before Jesus' arrest. And the prayer itself is made up of three parts. Verses 1 through to 5, Jesus essentially prays for himself and asks his father, God, will you glorify me? As I go to the cross, would you, would you bring forth the glory, your glory in this? The second part in verses 6 through to 19, Jesus prays particularly for the disciples. And when you read through those verses, the, the theme that's kind of most dominant is that God the Father would protect them from the evil one. Jesus is very alert to the spiritual battle that they're going to be encountering. And rather than asking God the Father to remove them from that, He says, no, 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 I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to remain in there, but would you protect them? Would you protect them from the battle, the spiritual battle that they're going to encounter? And then finally, in the third part, in verses 23 through to 26, Jesus prays for those who would come to believe through the disciples' message. In other words, he prays for you and I. He prays that as the disciples go out, those who would come to believe, he prays for them. He prays for you, you and I. Which is a staggering thought, is it not? A staggering thought that in the hours before Jesus goes to the cross, he takes the time to pray for the wrestles that he knows we will endure. We're not going to have a look at the whole thing, but I want to have a look at just the... The first few verses, verses 20 to 23, in which he prays for us. Prays for those who would come believe ultimately through the disciples' message. Have a look at what he says, verses 20 to 23 of John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, it's not just for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So the world would believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me. They may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. They're lovely words. And we can kind of summarize this part of Jesus' prayer as saying, he prays for one. He prays that we would be unified. And we've sung and listened to that theme already this morning. The question is, why? Why? Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, us, for those who would come believe in the disciples' message, why pray for unity? I mean, it would have made sense, would it not, for Jesus to pray, Father, help them to be holy. God is holy. 
why didn't he pray for holiness? Or alternatively, why didn't Jesus pray, pray that they would love? After all, God is love. Why not pray that they would love? Or, or more specifically, pray that they would love God the Father with all of our heart, mind and soul, the first and greatest commandment, or pray that we would love others like ourselves, which is the second one. Or alternatively, why didn't Jesus pray that they would walk, act justly, love mercy and walk humbly, as Micah 6, 8 talks about? There's a whole lot of things that Jesus could have prayed for, which would have made absolute perfect sense. So why unity? Of all the things, why unity? And I want to suggest as we look at the passage, we find three reasons as to why he prays for unity. Uh, It's because of the scope of the mission of God, because of who the mission of God is to reflect, and because of the message the mission of God seeks to proclaim. And I want to have a look at each of those three things. The scope of the mission, uh, who the mission is to reflect, and the message the mission seeks to proclaim. To try to answer this question, why unity? But also to understand why we should expect conflict as part of the mission of God. And so the first reason, uh, because of the scope of the mission of God. Just before Jesus prays there, if you've still got your Bibles there, if you look back to verse 18, you'll see that Jesus uh, talks about sending out the disciples. He says, as, as you, as Father, have sent me into the world, I have sent them, in reference to the disciples, I have sent them into the world. It's a reference to the Great Commission. The call Jesus places on his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, Jesus will reference this sending out of the disciples again in chapter 20, verse 21, uh, after his resurrection where he talks about, he says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus will again speak of this commission of sending the disciples to the world where he says to them, you will be my witnesses. Or as 2 Corinthians describes it, you will be my ambassadors of reconciliation in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure you've heard this before. The scope of God's mission is to the whole world. Right at the very beginning of the rescue plan, after the fall, God calls Abram out And he says to him in Genesis chapter 12 that you will be a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations, to all the peoples on earth. And we fast forward through that, all the way through scripture to Revelation, which we look forward to. And in Revelation 7, we have a picture of the fulfillment of that. As the people of God stand before the throne in Revelation 7, and we are told are made up of people of every tribe and language and nation. A mission that as a church we're still seeking to fulfill. There's still more than a third of the world's population today that has little or no opportunity to hear the gospel in their own language. It's the reason why as churches we still need to be sending people out to the nations. 
It's the reason why it's so encouraging to be part of a church that is committed to that and being able to kind of journey with the Medinas as an example of that. But Jesus also knew that the scope of this mission to go to the ends of the world would also bring with it one of its greatest challenges. For to go to the end of the earth, to go to the whole world and make disciples and build churches is seeking to bring together people who are naturally enemies. People who naturally don't get along whose cultural histories had them standing in opposition to each other, people whose interests and hobbies and values and ethics, even language, see them colliding with each other. In the immediate context for the disciples, the call to go were for a group of Jewish believers to go to Gentile territory. Uh, to start to rub up against and invite relationship with people who they thought unclean, who the best that we could probably kind of relate to would be some sort of akin apartheid type thinking. And God says, this kingdom, you need to welcome them in. It was a challenge for Jew and Gentile then and it was a challenge for us today. The call to go to the ends of the earth is not simply to go to people who are just like us, who we naturally get along with, but it's to go to all people, all nations and languages. And it's a mission by that very virtue means that it will include conflict. Tim Keller, another well-known biblical scholar, puts it this way, and if we can pull up that second quote, It said the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, race, income level, politics, nationality, accents, jobs or anything else of that sort that binds most groups together. Christians come together not because of any form of natural co-location, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. This is the only reason why John 13, 34 to 35 makes sense. When Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus because it's a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibilities. See, it's not just simply the diversity of the people of God that makes it unique. The UN is diverse. Nor is it that we are somehow a community that is completely conflict-free, as sometimes we might kind of like to think we are or aspire towards. What makes us unique And what Jesus is praying for here is that the way that we respond to conflict that amongst us is unique. That we respond to conflict in a way that is deeply distinctive from the world and the culture in which we live amongst. 
to give another thought to that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus prays what we refer to as the Sermon of the Mount, or at least he begins it. And he opens it with a group of statements that we often refer to as the Beatitude, a series of statements that really kind of distinguish uh, characteristics of the people of God. The seventh of those, which I'm sure many of you will have heard before, is this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Have you ever kind of considered that? That verse, that statement that Jesus makes as a description of the people of God presupposes that there will be conflict amongst the people of God. You see, you can't be a peacemaker with no conflict, right? That doesn't make sense. (laughs) The reason he says, blessed are the peacemakers, is because despite the conflict, despite the tensions that are there, they respond to them in such a unique way that it points people to God. For they will be called children of God. It points to the fact that this community, this This people of God being on the mission of God, conflict is actually part of, but that the gospel allows for it to be resolved in such a distinctive, such an attractive, such a radically different way to the rest of the world sees that it says, what is with that? How do I get a part of that? How can I understand the same hope? Several years ago, I got to see this play out beautifully. Uh, It was part of a community that I was connected with. It was a live-in Christian community. Uh, And one of the ladies who was there was from Taiwan. uh, And she'd been part of the community for a number of, yeah, for for a fair chunk of time. And uh, as part of that community, we welcomed in uh, some brothers and sisters in Christ from mainland China. And very quickly, uh, within the first day or so, some comments had been made uh, from our brothers and sisters who were visiting from mainland China uh, towards our Taiwanese sister that caused significant hurt. Uh, It was related to kind of the political challenges uh, that exist between China and Taiwan. And it had the potential to really rupture the community that we were part of. But rather than allowing it to rupture, rather than kind of stepping back from it or attacking, uh, which was one of the kind of thought of responses, there was the opportunity for us to sit down and say, what does the gospel have to say into this space? And over a series of very beautiful conversations, uh, apologies were made, reconciliation resolved, And suddenly, where there was conflict, which was way bigger than just some hurtful comments, it rested in racial divisions and political differences. We were able to see people in the gospel come together as one. It was a beautiful sight to watch. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus prays for unity here. He knows as the kingdom of God is made up of of what we've referred to here as natural enemies. He says, let your gospel ripple across that. Let it cover over those differences and unite them in such a way that it stands as a beacon of hope for everybody else that looks on. 
I think that's the first reason Jesus prays. You'll happen to know the other two reasons go a bit quicker. The second reason I think Jesus prays uh, for unity here, though, is because of who the mission of God is seeking to reflect. If you have a look again back at your passage, you'll see that in verse 21, Jesus prays, May all of them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And a little bit further in verse 22, he says, May they be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Which is why I suggest that the second reason Jesus prays for unity is because as we gather as a people of God, as we carry out the mission of God, uh, of which we are likened to being ambassadors to, Jesus wants us to reflect the nature of the Trinity. He says, be one, reflect as ambassadors of me, reflect the unity that is God of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Which, if nothing else, elevates any discussion about conflict and difference amongst the people of God to the most profound place. For when we're wrestling with how to build unity, how to overcome difference, how to reconcile, how to love people who are deeply different to ourselves and remain in relationship with them, We're in fact wrestling with how do we reflect the nature of the the triune God's unity. We're wrestling with how do we reflect the love of God amongst ourselves. How do we reflect the, the service that God the Son exercised towards God the Father in our relationship? How do we exercise the same level of submission towards each other as God the Son exercises towards God the Father as he goes to the cross? How do we exercise the same sort of love that the Father shows to the Son? You see, as we wrestle with these differences, as we wrestle with conflict which I'm suggesting is a natural part of the mission of God where we're wrestling with how do we announce to the world that God is a God of unity? How can we be ambassadors of that? Which is the second reason why I think he prays. And the third reason I would suggest that he prays is because of the message the mission of God is seeking to proclaim. Again, if you look back to the passage, you'll notice that in verse 23 and 21 are the words, so that. In verse 21 we read, uh, May they be in us so that the world would believe that you sent me. And in verse 23, So that the world might know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The third reason that Jesus prays for unity is because of the testimony that comes of who God is, of his lordship, of his love, of his incarnation, of the cross, of the message of reconciliation, the testimony of that when people of difference come together. And that's a profound truth 
That means when wrestling with unity and seeking to resolve difference is actually part of the mission of God. It's a way in which we actually proclaim something of who God is. That when we're wrestling with conflict, it's not just so that we can get on with the work of mission. It is part of the work of mission. For as we overcome those differences, we announce something to the world of who God is. That's his point here. So that the world would know. So he would know that Jesus was sent. So he would know something of the the reconciling power of the gospel. So it would know of the lordship. So he would know of the love of God. And that's a profound truth for us to grasp hold of. In the postmodern world in which we're living, you may be aware of this, that people are less and less concerned about truth. People, even beyond truth, want to know that it works. People want to know that the gospel makes a difference. People want to know that Jesus changes things. And this is saying the gospel changes relationships. The gospel can unite. The gospel is able to step us over our differences and find reconciliation through the cross, through the understanding that Jesus died for my sins, that he died for your sins, and therefore we can say sorry to each other and we forgive because Jesus has dealt with it. And we can look for stories to share about that. Uh, I can share lots of stories around this, but let me share one of the most profound that's happened in Rwanda. Uh, some of you would be potentially too young to remember what happened in Rwanda, Rwanda in 1994, but many of you would be old enough to remember the extraordinary scenes and horror of genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsis. Over around 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis were murdered by their Hutu neighbours. It was horrendous. And following on the aftermath of all of that in the nation was set up a, a commission, a reconciliation commission to help to try to reconnect people, to try to re-establish relationship between the Hutus and the Tutsis. A gentleman by the name of Anthony was one of the people appointed to that commission. He went on to become the longest serving uh, member of that commission. And in an interview when he was asked about the nature of reconciliation that has kind of swept over that nation on the back of the genocide, he was asked what he kind of saw to share some of those stories. And in an unpublished manuscript, uh, but in an interview which he shared this in, Uh, This is what he said, and if we can pull up the third quote. It says, they, or the, the stories, are all the same. A perpetrator is convicted by Jesus and can no longer live with his conscience and so decides to confess his crime to the remaining family members. On the other side, those family members have also been convicted by Jesus in spite of the absolute evil done to them, 
in that they can't continue to live in bitterness any longer. They decide that they have to forgive. Consequently, the parties come together and there is confession and forgiveness. It's an extraordinary statement from a commissioner who has overseen the reconciliation of a nation on the back of a genocide that he says the gospel is what brought us back together. It's the gospel that reunites natural enemies to be one. I started today's message with a proposition that conflict with others is an expected part of participating in the mission of God. And by looking at John 17, hopefully I've made something of a case to justify that statement. To say, yes, conflict is to be expected. But the other part of that proposition is that the gospel will trumpet. And that's the message that the world needs to hear. Because we live in a world that is still rife with conflict. It's conflict in nations, conflict between races. And I guess as you're kind of journeying through this series, thinking about mission and Jesus as the game changer, can I invite you to consider he's a game changer in conflict. And that's part of mission. Maybe that extends to relationships you're involved with right now, right here, to be able to say, actually, my missional activity might be to resolve conflict that I'm part of right now. But it might also be, as you watch the news, as you hear reports of racial tension, of conflict in even our own nation, to be able to hear that this is the place that the gospel is needed. For the gospel is able to overcome these. The gospel presents an answer to how people of different heritage, of different race, of different culture and values can come together to be one. It's a message of hope that the world desperately needs to hear. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that on the cross you died for our sins, that you allowed us to be reconciled to you through that. But thank you too that it was a message that allows us to not just reconcile with you, but allows us to reconcile with each other. To see that you bore not only our sins, but the sins of those who have maybe wronged us. And that in you, we can find a place to come together again. May you help us, each of us exercise that in our own lives. But Lord, we plead, we pray, let that message be made known to all peoples of all nations. So that as we stand together on that day, we would see uh, what we know is still come fulfilled. To stand together as one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.